it meant so much to me to uh, read you that uh, invocation, as he calls it, by John Seed. And um, it made me want to tell you that he's a Dharma brother. At the time that he had this epiphany in protecting the uh, old-growth trees uh, in the Terrania Creek area in New South Wales, he uh, was, uh, as he calls it, a hippie farmer on a rural commune called Bodhi Farm. He'd been in... uh, working for IBM as a systems analyst before that, and a sculptor, and then ended up uh, at Bodhi Farm. So I look forward to sharing with you the uh, in a, a miniaturized form uh, a bit of the uh, Council of All Beings. And... Uh, But before we do that, I would like to tell you a story. Uh, This is a story that helped to inspire the Counts of All Beings. I encountered it when my own children were young. It's from uh, a story of, a fanciful story of the life of King Arthur uh, in the book, The Once and Future King by T.H. White. Anybody? Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's fine. So you will remember that uh, King Arthur, when he was a boy, uh, he was something of an orphan, and he was being raised by Uther Pendragon, who had hired this wizard to be his tutor. So he was in the castle of Pendragon, and Merlin, the uh, magician, was uh, his tutor. Oh, I thought, how, and my children thought, we, wouldn't we love to have a teacher like Merlin? <laughs> and one of the peculiarities of Merlin in this book uh, is that he was living life backwards, and that... Uh, as everyone else around him in the whole culture was uh, getting older, he was progressively younger. And uh, he also had a big owl uh, who was like to, uh, was in his magician studio, also liked to go around on his, uh, perched on his head and his shoulders. So his shoulders were decorated with owl turtles. Owl turds is worse than dandruff. <laughs> to have owl droppings. You think you were. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, so there's this little boy, and, and the boy Arthur was called the Wart, and, uh, and he had an older stepbrother uh, who was uh, very vain and pompous and gave him a hard time, but. He was in the hands of Merlin, and one day they were talking without any kind of introduction at all, without any warning. A little boy, Arthur, found himself swimming as a carp in the palace moat. (laughs) 
no warning whatsoever. <laughs> and there he was, negotiating, doing pretty well as a carp with carp gills and everything. And, uh, and he learned a lot uh, from the world of carps and other kinds of fish you find in palace moats. And so he got back from that, and um, he was just so astonished. But Merlin didn't seem inclined to talk about it. He just thought, well, this is part of your education. (laughs) And then the next thing, you remember? Next thing, whoop, he was in the falconry, in the falcon keep uh, near the palace. It wasn't a palace. It was a kind of shabby old castle. Uh, but th- there he was, and with the others, and uh, the falconer uh, then took him out, put a hit hood on him, and with his padded glove, you know how they do it, and took him out. And he was the falcon, the boy Arthur. And what an incredible education that was. Wasn't that amazing? What, would you suddenly find yourself being able to take off, the hood pulled off, he went and up into the sky and as fast as anything. Eyes that could see the details at a great distance. That Oh boy. So he learned quite a bit <laughs> being a falcon. And you never could tell how long these educational episodes were <laughs> lasting. Uh, the one which was my favorite which was when he found himself with a lot of others of his kin on a uh, spit of land in the Baltic. Or, uh, and, uh, and they were all getting stirred up and they were taking, getting ready to take off on a great migration and he was a wild goose. And that, that seemed quite a... That had tremendous impact on me. Uh, I could identify with that so amazingly. I could feel it in my body, how it is to take off. I feel the wind in my armpits. Yeah, so that was uh, one after another. He was an ant. He was a badger. Those of you who remember, am I missing any of this... uh, I mean, talk about sending your kid away to camp. I mean, <laughs> just... And uh, so um, the, the, the time with the ants was quite scary. For He sort of had the experience of being in a very regimented, almost totalitarian society, which I've since learned from ant scientists is not accurate. But that's... So I tell you this to explain what happened later and how he became king of all England. Um, So the old king died and it became known that the new king would be determined at a great tournament in London town. So everybody turned out there. And, oh, boy, they were the strongest uh, knights of the time and the most, with the most pride and arrogance of their capacity and their 
armor, and there was a lot of uh, showing off and a lot of jockeying for who was going to get recognized. And the interesting thing was that the choice of the next king relied on a feat of, like, magic. There was, in the churchyard, there was a big rock, and plunged into the rock was a sword right up to the hilt. And the knight who was to become the next king of all England was the one who could draw the sword from the stone. Well, you can imagine that there was, they gathered, and there was a lot of uh, grunting and huffing and sweating and pulling, and people just fit to bust a gut, I tell you, just to pull that out, and it was just anchored in there like cement. So furious and disheartened and disgruntled, the knights finally went on back to their tournament, but the boy Arthur, just a stripling then, what would you think he was, maybe 14, 13, 14, I don't know, he was just stayed there in the churchyard looking at that, and he said, how could you not give it a try, I ask you. So he goes over to it, and he puts his hand in the hilt, and he pulls, nothing happens. He puts his foot, <coughs> pulls, nothing happens. And so he keeps trying, and he gets out of breath and sweaty, and he just pauses, catching his breath, and he looks up, And around the churchyard, he sees them. All his old buddies and teachers. There was the falcon, and there was the carp. Don't tell me how the carp got there in the bushes. (laughs) And there was the badger, and there was the goose, and there was the ant, and all those who had shared with him their ways of living this life. And they were looking at him, and they were smiling. And he looked at them all, and he felt their good wishes and their lessons. And he felt the kind of solidarity that he had felt when he was their student. And he knew he couldn't pull the sword of the stone out by himself. Oh, but with the rest of creation there looking at it. He turned and he put his hand around the handle and he didn't even have to put his foot up. He just pulled it out as easy as a knife from butter. I'd like a gasp, please. (laughs) So... And that meant so much to me that when, at any rate, uh, when I was in Australia on that first tour, it was 1985, and John C. said, you know, this work, you've got something here. <laughs> it's pretty strong, but you've, it's got, you need a little more deep ecology in here. And so I said, all right. And we thought up the Council of All Beings. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, 
who I was in that first Council of Beings. Actually, I was for the first year of the Council of Beings. I was wild goose. And I could write a book. Actually, I could write a book about doing the Council of All Beings in different places and what happened to people. Like what happened to my husband. Do you mind if I just rattle on like this? I could be giving you wise teachings, but these are kind of wise. Um, he loved he loved the Council of All Beings, my husband, Fran. And uh, one of them, he, uh, because what you do in the Council of Beings is, as you will see, you step aside from your human identity and ask to be chosen by another life form. And then you ask their permission to speak for it. And so that's what you do. And so he, uh, what came to him that wanted to speak through him was Lake Baikal. And this is a lake in Siberia that is an amazing body of water. It has 20% of the planet's fresh water. I kid you not. And there's particular forms of sea life that aren't found anywhere else. But it was also, the Soviets had put up some paper mills there and it was being polluted. And So uh, Fran, my husband, became for the better part of the afternoon, I think he stayed most of the day in the personality of being of, of Lake Baikal. And then all that came after that over the years, Baikal Watch, projects with the Earth Island Institute. He took David Brower in the first delegation to Lake Baikal. It just all came because of that. Mm. And I could, there are other, see, watch out whom you, (laughs) (laughs) not don't watch out, be ready for your life to be expanded considerably. So the way I think that, now I guess you're ready to do it, right? Um, the way I propose is that uh, we, uh, you stand up and just move around. Don't pay any attention to anybody else. Just feel what's in your body and then sit down again and you're going to sit anywhere in the room with two other people. So you're going to be a threesome. You can sit right close to uh, Prajnaparamita or off in the corner anyway, but maybe a little space away from other people. So you move around, and then you uh, sit down with two other people. Get comfortable. You're going to be like this for 30, 40 minutes. Can I turn off the recording now, or you want oh, to yes. stay on? Okay. Oh, 